0: Each day I have a greater appreciation for what Paul said And he said, this is the day which the Lord has made And we will rejoice And be glad in it I now know that misery is optional So the good news which I bring to you this morning Is that miracles still happen It happened to me So I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. When I was being made ready for this recovery program, there were a number of facts which I had to admit, accept, and surrender to. The fact that I was bodily and mentally different from other people, I had to accept, admit, and surrender to. The delusion that I was like other people, a person who would be, had to be smashed. No matter how intelligent I had been in other respects where alcohol was involved, I had been strangely insane. When I started drinking, I had little or no control over the amount of drank, and when I wanted to quit entirely, I found I couldn't do it on my own. I had to have help. Now, there are a number of things which are permissible for other people, not so afflictive, which I must forego. For instance, I can't drink. Well, millions can. Now, I have to either accept that fact or accept the dire consequences of what will follow. I don't toast people anymore. I salute them. At like one time, I would toast anything. The ringing of the doorbell, the ringing of the telephone, the breaking of the ocean's waves against the shores. The verse says, I drink to your health when we're together, and I drink to your health when I'm alone. I drink to your health often, darn near ruin my own.
1: <laughs> now,
0: now, some people can have hate, hot tempers, lust, envy, jealousy, greed, anger. I can't. I'm an alcoholic. I can't even have justified resentment or justified anger. Now these may be the dubious pleasures of other people, but for me they're poison. I'm an alcoholic. Now some of us in here think we had greater provocation to drink than anyone else, but the truth of the matter is. The book of James tells us, for every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now, some people under provocation drink and some don't. Of those who drink, some become alcoholics. The figure that's being used now in most quarters is about one in ten, except when you come to physicians, doctors, and they're using about one in eight. Now, those of us who become alcoholics, we develop an obsession of the mind which forces us to drink against our will and so to die unless we change. And I want to say right up here, right front, if there's anyone here, anywhere in the world who is afflicted with the disease of alcoholism, who is not treating their mind and at least trying to live by spiritual principles and they are running around with a terminal and fatal case of untreated alcoholism. But you know there's an old hymn which I'm very fond of It says, I know the Lord will make a way for me. And we're reminded... First Corinthians chapter ten and verses eleven says there has no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted beyond that which ye are able, but who will, with the temptation, also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Now the inspired word is saying here, the temptation and the escape from it come together. That says to me as an alcoholic, the very fact that I am an admitted alcoholic, step one, that very fact gives me a means wherewith to combat this illness, this temptation. For to know ourselves diseases is half our cure. I'm certainly not trying to preach this morning. That would be faith, as I never studied an hour of theology in my life. I'm simply attempting to set the stage of our recovery program by going back to our roots, as it were. Where did it come from? And I think we come to the nitty-gritty of the roots of this recovery program and The book of Psalms, where it says, And the Lord gave the word, and great was the company of those who published it. I believe that the, the authors of our recovery program was God, divine wisdom. I think he simply used Bill and Bob and the others of the first 100 as instruments to fulfill the scriptures to publish, as it were, these 12 steps as our way to escape. Well, I reckon this to Moses, going up on the mountain, bringing down the ten tables of the law, I don't think this is the first time Moses ever thought of writing the Ten Commandments, but I'm sure glad he went up there and got them and brought them down and gave them to us, just as I'm happy that Bill got still for that 40 minutes or so and wrote the 12 steps as our way escape. You know, I really believe these twelve steps are one of the instances of direct inspiration which we know of. And therefore, truly, they are the bread which cometh down from heaven of which we alcoholics may eat thereof and not die. You know, Bill warned, or told us, early on in the passage of the twelve and twelve he says the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous are a group of principles spiritual in their nature which if practiced as a way of life can expel the obsession to drink and enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole see joyous Of living is the theme. But action is the key word. That practiced as a way of life can enable the sufferer to become happily and usefully whole. So for all of us who have shared this common problem of alcoholism and have discovered this way to escape, we should join with the psalmist David and sing praises unto the Lord, for He has dealt bountifully with us. For you know we deserve sickness. We've received help. We deserve confinement. We receive freedom. We deserved to be ostracized, and we receive friends. We deserve scorn. We received respect, we deserved death, we received life, we deserved nothing, and we received all. So for all of us who are recovering from this illness, we know that this illness is not unto death, but unto the glory of God. Now, the program suggests that we share our experience, strength, and hope with each other that we may solve our common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. So my experience is my past. I don't regret my past nor wish to shut the door on it. For if I do, I may forget what I am. And if I forget what I am, I may drink again. For me to drink is to die. My strength is the love and the will of the God of my understanding, for his will is my peace. And my hope is that I'll remain in a God-dependent status and help others to find the God of their understanding. I was born the oldest of eight sons in a family of fourteen children, I came along after three daughters. Dad had finally gotten his son. I was born in Detroit, Michigan. In 1932, because of the Great Depression, my folks were forced to move from Detroit, Michigan, back to their home in North Carolina. I was age four at the time, and my dad owned an old 1932 flatbed Model T truck. So he packed Mom and his four kids and all the earthly belongings on that old truck and looking much like, I'm sure, the Beverly Hillbillies, we finally made it to North Carolina and settled on a small farm in Robertson County. Shortly after getting there, my dad acquired an old abandoned school bus bed and mounted it on the back of this flatbed motor T. And that became the first busing system for Indian kids in Robinson County. Now the gasoline tank in this old truck was on the inside, just behind the driver's seat. I'd already become my dad's shadow, and that became my seat. I'd sit on that seat, and I'd count the kids as they got on and off the bus, and I'd show them where to sit. Now, mind you, all these kids were older than I, but I was the boss. For two years, I was law and order (laughs) on that school
1: bus.
0: (laughs) What an ego builder. That was right from the beginning. (laughs) My mom told me that many a time when circumstances weren't just so that I could follow my dad, I would throw a temper tantrum, the likes of which she had never seen. She said I would throw myself on the floor, kicking and screaming, and batting my head against the floor until I fell asleep or he came back. She said she'd just let me kick and scream it out. No, I think she made an excellent Al-Anon member.
1: <laughs> so
0: in those earlier years, my father was quite a religious man. We were in church every Sunday. I had perfect attendance for Sunday school many years earlier on. My Mom wasn't with us so often, so she was usually at home waiting for the arrival of a new child or caring for it after it came, but... Recall in those earlier years I memorized 150 psalms, for instance. Won many a Bible sword drill. Now, any of you here who are familiar with the Southern Baptist know what a Bible sword drill is. When the Sunday school teacher was absent, I got to teach the class, and I played the church organ occasionally. Anyway, this self-drive continued on through elementary and high school. I recall in the seventh grade there were six awards to be given to the class, and I received all six of those awards. Again in the ninth grade, the English literature teacher assigned a rather lengthy poem written by William Cullen Byron to be memorized. I was the only kid in the class who memorized that particular poem. But this kept going, and I recall, way back at about age six, My mother had just had another baby and she had had this baby at home and the doctor came by a few days later to check on Mom and the new baby and as he was finishing up, he gave my mother a shot and then he turned and he squirted something in a smoldering fire in the fireplace and it blazed up. And I said in astonishment, what was that? She says, why, that's Dr. Magic. Well, I made up my mind right then and there that someday I was going to know what Dr. Magic was. Now, I'm still looking for it. Now, Dr. Mooney back there may have found it, but I just haven't found it yet. But I'm still looking for it. Anyway, I left Robinson County and went back to Michigan at the end of my 11th grade in high school and graduated there in a class of over 200 kids as valedictorian. I worked 40 hours a week in the Kaiser-Fraser plant. During that year. Now, all this was doing my dad and others proud, all this achievement. But it was doing something to me that was later to almost become my undoing. So, you see, I was becoming selfish, self centered, and self sufficient in all its obnoxious splendor. You see, later I was to learn that the first 100 said selfishness and self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of our problem. For so barely 18 years of age, I was enrolled as a freshman at the University of Michigan. Now, that didn't bother me at all. I was there along with about 20,000 other students. Because I knew I had the power to master anything they had there. So after three and a half years, I received a B.S. degree from that institution. But it was here during my sophomore year that I met the Lady Bacchus in the form of a case of slips, A case of slips which I had won from a fellow student playing
1: blackjack.
0: (laughs) I came into my dorm room one night about 10.30, and this student had brought this case of beer up to my room. Now, that was against university rules. But when I got in there, he and another student had already started in on my case of beer. So in order for me to get my share, I had to play catch-up. So the next day they said to me, you better never do to us again what you did last night. They said I'd get start naked and get out of the hallway, and they spent most of the night putting my pajamas back on me, keeping me in bed. (laughs) Because now the house mother lived on that same floor just around the corner. Now she had become privy to what was going on. We'd all been expelled from school. So you see, I blacked out with my first drinking experience. Now I suppose that would make me a primary alcoholic for whatever that's worth. But I do know I never liked the taste of the stuff. I never drank with meals. Now, I drank many a time instead of eating, but I never drank with meals. But, you know, I told you sometime earlier on there, I made up my mind to find out about this doctor magic. Well, time came in, it was time now to applied to medical school. So I applied to the medical school there at Michigan, was accepted, and after four years, I graduated number two in the class of 182 students. So after my hospital training, I came to North Carolina to practice medicine. So armed with a considerable amount of synthetic knowledge of medicine, a powering ego, assured of my self-sufficiency, For I even suffered the delusion that I had been endowed with a sixth sense. A sixth sense that I could see things other people couldn't see, and what's more I could see the solution to problems when they couldn't see them. So after I got there and settled down, one of the first problems I was to tackle and fix outside of medicine was the Robinson County School System. Well, after looking at that thing for just a little bit, I became aware that the people who were dealing with it didn't have the slightest idea of what the problems were, and what's more, they had no idea at all what the solutions ought to be. And I knew where there is no vision, the people perish. So I armed myself with a lot of information by a man by the name of Dr. Conant, who had written extensively on the comprehensive high school. Another man named Dr. Alport, who had written quite a bit on reading and how to read a book and how to teach reading, and I made up my mind what ought to be done to save that school system. So I called the superintendent of the public instructions one Wednesday morning, and I told him I'd like to come down and talk with him. He says, Well, Dr. Brooks, we'd like to talk to you any time. You come down any time you can. I said, What about this afternoon? He says, that will be fine. So at two that afternoon, I was in his office, and I started talking. After I talked about an hour and a half, he called in his assistant superintendent, and I continued to talk until seven that evening.
1: <laughs>
0: well, that discussion ended up with the superintendent saying, well, I'm Dr. Brooks, what you say might be what we ought to do, but that's impossible. <laughs> he said, the people won't stand for it. And this assistant superintendent agreed with him. Well, you see, I hasten to add... Said, now look, the people don't know what's good for them It's your job to give them what they ought to have
1: <laughs> Well
0: anyway, I left that meeting And sort of in the words of the Rolling Stones I ain't got no satisfaction
1: <laughs>
0: And I resented that In fact, that resentment grew and grew Until I became so restless, irritable, and discontent That I pulled my first blackout drunk in Robinson County But when I came to from that blackout, I saw that for my decisions to be carried out, they had to have social function. That meant that school board had to agree, and then they'd tell that superintendent what he had to get on and get done, because I knew when a decision was made, execution was the order of the day. Now, I had made the decision. Now, I'd bypassed the Board of Education to start with, because all they'd done was sit around and set policy and make decisions? Well, I had made the decision. There was no need for them, you see. At that time, the Robinson County School Board was composed of five members, and I went to each member individually, and I explained to them in detail what had to be done to save that school system. Well, I found each member of the same persuasion as the superintendent, the assistant superintendent, and through that endeavor, I had five blackouts. (laughs) But when I came to from that last blackout I saw that Robertson County had to have a new school board So I announced my candidacy for the board and I ran Well, when those votes were counted It was pretty obvious that the majority of those Who had voted the day before Were of the same persuasion As the superintendent, the assistant superintendent And all five members of the board But when I came to from that blackout I saw that my I really saw the true magnitude of this problem I had to convince the majority of the voting public of Robinson County what had to be done to save their school system So I set about organizing registration drives And over the next two years we added some few better than 5,000 new registrants to the books in Robinson County. Well, now I knew that the sleeping giant had been awakened, and it was just a matter of time, and I'd be elected, and everything would fall in place. Well, on election day, voting day, you know, a majority of those people who understood so clearly just yesterday what had to be done to save their school system didn't even go to the polls and vote. <laughs>
1: so
0: I came to again, but by now... My elixir of oblivion was beginning to play tricks on me. By art, I'd be taken drunk right in the middle of a bank board meeting. I'd be taken drunk on the highway, in church, before going to work, in the middle of seeing a patient. I recall that the day before my oldest son graduated from high school, I took the drink or two and I came to the day after he graduated. Now I have no more idea than any person sitting in this room why I started to drink that day. You see, this boy had done everything I expected of him during high school. He had attended a military academy during his high school years. He had received most of the honors that school gave. He was valedictorian of his class. And I'm told he gave quite a speech for the valedictory address. But I didn't hear it. I had a repeat performance for President Carter's inauguration, to which I had a VIP invitation. But that mental twist of the first drink preempted the whole show. When I came to, he had been president for two days.
1: <laughs> now,
0: you see, that's got to be plain insanity. I think that's the insanity we talk about, the insanity of alcoholism. And since coming into the AA program, my children have been an unending resource of information of my behavior when I was drinking. For instance, my second daughter, Kathy, she tells me she was the only kid in the third grade who was thoroughly versed in the Pythagorean theorem, for instance. (laughs) They told me that I would come home at two in the morning and get them up and give them detailed lectures on the menstrual cycle and reproduction when they were ages seven and
1: eight.
0: (laughs) And my oldest son tells me he had to cut the grass many a time at three a.m. (laughs) You see, I was having a romance with the Lady Bacchus And romanticism knows no time or place At time, I thought I would literally shake loose from this romance But you know, a few sips of that mighty elixir And the courtship had smooth sailing again You see, by this time I had become addicted to her cunning And baffling and powerful nature Long right about this time, I was divorced, divorced from my first wife, and her lawyer was attempting to prove to the court that I was alcoholic. So he uh, suspended several bits of information along with my previous three years' income tax returns, and he went on for about 15 minutes or so before the court, and finally the judge says, you strike that testimony from the record. I can't see that he's proved Dr. Brooks to be an alcoholic. So you see, there was a man of some real wisdom. He knew what that lawyer was up to, you know? <laughs> But, ah. Well, that was some ten years before I came into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But the six months just prior to coming in, I was admitted eight times to various psychiatric hospitals and institutes of one sort or another. And, you know, on reflection, I was drunk every time I was admitted. (laughs) And I was sober every time I got out. (laughs) Now, it doesn't take too much figuring out, you know, from that, that that not drinking's got a heck of a lot to do with not getting drunk, you see. (laughs) Well, anyway... One morning, one September morning, I was sitting in the loafing room of the Moore County General Hospital and Dr. Ted Clark walked up and he says, Martin, how do you feel? Now, you see, the last two times I had come to, this man was staring me in the face saying, Martin, what happened? It don't have to be this way. It don't have to be this way. But this time when he said, Martin, what happened? I said, almost by echo, totally helpless, Ted. At that time, I knew that something was going to happen. I knew I was going to do something. I didn't know how. I didn't know where. And I didn't know what. But I just had that feeling that something was going to happen. Alcohol had become the great persuader. I stood at the turning point and I was open to suggestions now they had suggested several things which I might do and that I might find some help that way one of the things they suggested was that I might find some help in an alcohol treatment center so with an open mind as much mind as I could muster at the time, I entered a 28-day treatment, Center for Alcoholism. Now, for the sake of anyone who might be here that's fairly new in the program, I want to hasten to add that I didn't wake up that morning and suddenly get a spontaneous insight to my illness and Decide, now today is the day I'm going to start my recovery. I'm going to go get things in line so I can begin to recover. No, by no means. I was goaded with love by my brothers and sisters. I was harassed with love. There were three separate involuntary commitment papers taken out on me. That's reasonably harassing. (laughs) Oh, by this time now I was no longer drinking to escape reality. I was drinking now to satisfy a craving. I had gotten to the point in my drinking where I couldn't help but drink. I had to drink to live, I had to drink to function. I had lost the power of choice in drink. I had also drifted into the phase of my illness that I like to refer to as the loneliness of loneliness. I had either run away, most of the people who at one time were close and meaningful to me, or they had left of their own accord because they just couldn't stand it anymore. But still there were two people who were reasonably close, and that was Jeanette and her oldest daughter. They were threatening to leave if I didn't do something. Now, if they had left, that loneliness would have been absolute, and I didn't think I could live that way. I sometimes now reflect on, I wonder, how and where people like Elvis Presley, Marilyn Monroe, Freddie friends, Hank Williams, might be, if they had recognized this phase of their life and had been able to... Gotten some help with it and gotten through this phase of the loneliness of loneliness. But so when that becomes absolute, there's nobody turned on but. Well, so anyway, right after I got into this treatment center, they said, Now, Martin, you are sick physically, mentally, and spiritually. I had no problem at all with that physical part because while they were telling me that, I was demonstrating it for I was shaking, sweating, heaving. (laughs) The mental part was I was acutely aware of that because I would find myself reading, I thought, for the first time, say, an article in one of the medical journals and I'd find where I'd written some notes in the margin Then I'd know I had read it before by my handwriting even degenerated now can you picture what a doctor's handwriting looks like when it degenerates
1: <laughs> the night
0: that I was admitted to this treatment center they, I had written them a check for my expenses and about a week later they asked me to come by the business office and they handed me this check it was totally <laughs> illegible Now, the spiritual part that <coughs> didn't make much difference with me. I thought they'd probably just thrown that in there either to frighten me a little bit or maybe to confuse me farther. But anyway, at the beginning it made very little impact on me. So right after I got in they gave me a bunch of questions and they asked me to answer them. And I did. After I had finished answering them they said, Now, Martin, do you think you're an alcoholic? I said, Well, now, according to those questions and... Um, Those answers I gave, I am. Now that's the first time I had gotten honest with myself on a meaningful level about this problem. And there was a great man in medicine named Sir William Osler once who said, it's not so important what disease a patient has as what patient has the disease. And you know, our textbook tells us that many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. But it appeared that at that level I was a potential candidate for recovery, because I did have, apparently, enough honesty to say, yes, I'm an alcoholic. So they said, well, now, if you're an alcoholic and you want to recover, there's two things you've got to do. One is, you've got to get sober, and you've got to stay sober. Now, they knew, and I was to learn later, that sobriety is to recovery, as fire is to burning. So there's no fire, there's no burning. So there's no sobriety, there's no recovery. And they says you've got to accept help. Well, now that hadn't been confused a little bit, you see. I reminded them, I said, now wait a minute, now you know, I was valedictorian of my high school class, (laughs) and I graduated number two in a medical class, and I've organized a bank, no less. I've received the Distinguished Service Award. They admitted all these things were true. But then they said, why didn't you go to your son's graduation?
1: (laughs) <laughs>
0: Why didn't you attend President Carter's inauguration? Why were you in a blackout? You see, at that point, lack of power was my dilemma And you see, I had gone, they told me They says, now we're going to help you all we can But that's not going to be enough It says you can muster all the power you can But that won't be enough See, I had gone to this treatment center looking for a way to stay sober, and a few days after I was there, I found that the main object of this program is to help me find the power that will solve my problem. Didn't say I was going to get the power to do it. It's going to help me find the power that will solve my problem. Didn't look like I was any better off then than I the was before went, didn't it? So, I was a little confused and a little bewildered, but you know, in the textbook it says, I don't have to accept somebody else's concept of God. My concept, no matter how inadequate, is sufficient to make an approach and to make contact. Then on the next page it says, as soon as a newcomer says he is willing to believe, or that he believes we emphatically assure him he is on his way. Now, every speaker that I was hearing there in the treatment center from podiums such as this one was saying that they found the power and the power solved the problem. I was being taken outside to AA meetings. The speakers there were saying the same thing. Reading Bill's story in the front of the book, That was saying the same thing. Reading the stories in the back of the book was confirming that if you can just find that power, that power will solve your problem. Now it was obvious to me that this power had to be a power greater than me, because I had tried thousands of times with every bit of the power in me to stay sober, and I'd end up drunk every time. So. I really accepted a, a prophecy that said something like this, because I really had to enter a spiritual kindergarten. Now, mind you, I had been baptized in the Reformed Lutheran Church while I was in Michigan, and had transferred my membership to the Methodist Church in North Carolina. But it was only after coming into AA and getting to know a God personal to me that I realized that I had gotten starched and iron before I had been washed. Well, as I entered this spiritual kindergarten, I accepted a a prophecy which said there is a power greater than myself that can and will solve my problem. Now, in accepting a prophecy like that, it was a little hard for me to believe this. But I found that as I acted on that belief I began to feel better Things began to be different Now I didn't see any great things happen but there was a better feeling about it I knew it was working So it became pretty obvious to me that my spiritual life had been thorough because I had not acted And as I Continued to act on this belief that there was a power greater than myself that would and could solve my problem, things got better. As I continued to do this more and more and drew near enough, he disclosed himself to me, and then I knew. Now, this is the archway through which I walked to freedom. I found that at times, I would act exactly the opposite of the way I believed. I found that I had believed in a God all the time. But I would act exactly the opposite of that belief at times. Why, I would pray all the way to the liquor store that I would stay (coughs) sober. Well, now that I had found a God personal to me, a God that was forgiving, a loving God, an all-knowing God, Now I could do what was called for in Step 3. I can turn my will and my life over now to the care of this kind of God. Now, what is my will and what is my life? Well, it's my thinking. Now, you know, this body of mind doesn't do a thing that that mind doesn't tell it to do. Now, if God is directing this mind, this thinking, my actions are going to be right, as a man thinketh, so is he. But I could do something else now. I could make a decision to do the rest of the steps, because now I had a God of my understanding that I could trust to help me. Because without this God of my understanding that I have now, there's no way I could have taken a searching and fearless moral inventory. At best, I would have taken a fearful inventory. So now that I have found this loving, merciful, forgiving, all-knowing God, I have to get me a self-fit to live with, a self-fit for my God to know, and a self-fit for my fellow man to know. And the way you do this is all laid out in the clear-cut direction. So I began to peel the onion of my life, pointing out my defects. And this was done, then admitted to God, myself, and to another human being, I think in that admission there inside it also implies became willing to forgive myself at that stage. Now, the admitting to myself and to God was not very difficult for me, because I knew I wasn't going to tell, and I didn't think he'd tell. But that last part there Was a little bit of a problem It meant that I had to start Doing something now That I had not been in the habit of doing That is I had to trust Another human being I had to trust somebody else Humility had to have It's beginning at this stage But when this was done I got to step six. It says the king entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Now, I told you how much I enjoyed resentment, and I wasn't ready to turn loose resentment. So I looked in the books, and it says, when the way the first 100 handled resentment, that when somebody did something that bothered them or was wronging them, they would ask God to grant them the same pity, patience, and understanding they would a sick friend. Well, that didn't do it for me. It just didn't work quite for me there. So I had to look for some more help with resentment. And here again I found some help in the great book. And I think God knew that if he made man and he gave him freedom of choice, he would likely abuse that power of choice. And that abuse would likely become his undoing. So he left specific instructions in his son's sermon on the mount As to how we were to live and relate to each other, when he said, Love by an enemy. Be good to them. That hurt you. Pray for those who persecute you. He goes on to say that Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now I knew I couldn't be perfect. But then when I turn back in the textbook and it says the principles we have set down are guides to progress. We claim spiritual progress rather than spiritual perfection. Remember one time I was coming out of a blackout, which was my way of handling resentment at the time, and I found a a little piece of paper on the wall in a place that I couldn't miss it. And the verse that was on there, it says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. And I thought I was a wise man, but it was telling me that's not the way you handle resentment. But it didn't tell me how to handle it until I got to the Sermon on the Mount and I saw that you love your enemy. That's the way you handle it. You handle it with love. So... Now that I could was entirely ready, and when I humbly asked that he remove these shortcomings and he did, I had finally divorced the Lady Bacchus. There still a little work to be done, though, because when I was out there operating that self will run riot, that ego mania, uh, I had hurt a lot of people. Some of them had retaliated and hurt me, so there was some sense-mending to do. And I'd already put these names down when I did step four. So I set about in mind making direct amends wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Then the great step which helps keep our quality of sobriety and keep us from the mainstream continued to take personal inventory and when wrong, possibly admitted it. You know, we are warned that. Let he who thinketh his standard, take heed lest he fall. You know, I'm never so insecure as when I think I am secure. I go it before deduction, a heart spirit before the fall. Continued ego reduction is essential in this program. Constant vigilance is the price of sobriety. Now that he is my director and I am his agent, he gives me a way of knowing what his directions are for me through prayer and meditation. In answering my prayers, he teaches me the difference between my needs and my wants, always satisfying and providing for my needs I wants to never satisfy. You no, know, I think this eleventh step is what John, what God was referring to in John's vision when He says, "John, I set before thee an open door which no man can shut." You now we like to say to newcomers and to our fellow members, when things aren't going right, you think things getting a little stinking, you call another AA member, get yourself to a meeting, do this, do that. That's all great. That's good. But in the event that such things are not possible, circumstances are such that you can't do that. This door of communication is always open, direct to the source, no intermediaries, direct there. And he tells me exactly what to pray for, only for knowledge of his will for me and the power to carry that out. So James says he. Ask and receive not because you ask the miss that you may consume it on your own breath. Now, having had a spiritual awakening, I know I've had a spiritual awakening. I know that because now I can feel things that I couldn't feel before. I can now feel true concern for the well being of another human being. Before, my concern for you was, how can you help me? How can you push me up a little higher on the ladder? That was selfishness. Now, I might be good to you, and I might even give you things, but that was to make you like me. That was self-centeredness. I can... Now, these things that I couldn't do before, I can stay sober now, and I couldn't stay sober before. But you know, you can have a perfectly good baby, and if you don't feed it and nourish it and keep it warm, it's going to die. And our textbook reminds us that our hope as alcoholics is a maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience. And Bill warns us earlier on that faith without work is dead. He says, if we don't work self-sacrificially with other alcoholics, we won't be able to span the low spots in the valleys ahead. And if we don't work, we will drink again. And for us to drink is to die. Then faith would be dead indeed. so us alcoholics just that way and that which has been so freely given we must share I think we have to share it in a particular way I think we need to learn to share it as Christ did when they brought the the mob brought the lady and threw her at his feet and in one hand they carried a report of her life what she had been and what she had ended up. On the other hand, they carried a stone. The plan was to give a report of this lady's life, and then, under the old Moses law, they thought they'd be able to breathe the life from her with the stone. When <coughs> Christ looked at the woman, he didn't have to have any report. She knew what this lady had become and the kind of life she had lived. So he looked out into the crowd, and he says something to the effect, now, if there's anyone among you here who is not a part of what this lady has become, you cast the first stone. And it goes on to say that, and they turned and walked away, leaving the rocky path behind them. They didn't give the report of the lady, and said they took their own inventories. Then Christ being the gentleman that he was still didn't look at the lady but do something in the fan and said something to the effect go and don't do it anymore he pointed away and not a finger now there are those of us here who are not without blame there are those Back in our communities, we have walked away from. We've come and given our report about them, yes. But we haven't cared enough to point away and not a finger. You know, we who are recovering, who have found this way of escape, we have something which medicine doesn't have. We have something which, for the most part, many churches don't have. We have a guarantee of a better way of life for the still-suffering alcoholic, And somewhere out there, somebody needs us and what we found. You know, this problem of alcoholism is a worldwide problem which can only be solved on the local level in groups like this one, by people like you and me. And as long as grain and fruit juices will ferment, John Barleycorn's going to be out there recruiting people like you and me. And it's my sincere hope that there'll be people like you and me around to help these new recruits find their way through that archway through which we walked to freedom ever being mindful that freedom is a fruit and faith in God is a root. And if we want the fruit, we've got to look for the root. I came to this meeting for the same reason that I go to every AA meeting, to get a treatment for my disease of alcoholism. This weekend has been intensive care for my illness. It's also been a treat, because it's a treat for me to stand here and look out into your faces and know that we are normally people who would not miss, and also to know that there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. Also, to know that we have all found a way out on which we can absolutely agree and join in brotherly and harmonious action. Father, I bid you Godspeed as you leave this hall and these stolen owls, I hope that are soon to continue your recovery unity in unity and service, I would charge all of us the the final paragraph of our recovery section which says abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us and we will be with you in the fellowship of the spirit. Ensure it. You will make some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny.
1: May God bless and keep you. Amen.